So if you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 18, here we are on Palm Sunday and yet we're six chapters ahead uh, in our study. And yet uh, what we're going to study today has a direct correlation to what we studied weeks ago when we were in John 12. So John chapter 18 beginning in verse 22. When Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of these disciple, his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could also eat the Passover. So Pilate went out, sighed to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back in outside to the Jews and told them, I find no fault in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. And soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head and arrayed Him in a purple robe. They came up to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck Him with their hands. And let's pray. Great God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that You would open up to us this text. We've read it. We want to understand it. We want to see Jesus in all of His glory, but we also want to see ourselves in this story as well. Lord, we thank You for John, Your servant. His 
obedience and willingness to write exactly what happened. Lord, we pray that You might write the meaning of these words on our hearts and our minds so that we might become more and more like Jesus. For we ask it in His name. Amen. The woman was born in Kosciuszko, Mississippi. The same town where James Meredith had been born 21 years earlier. This was 1954. There were three women present at her birth. Her mother, Vernita. Lee. Her aunt, Ida. And a midwife by the name of Rebecca Presley. As soon as she was out of her mother's body, Aunt Ida saw that she was a girl and she called out a name. She said, name her by this name. And it was a biblical name. One of the daughter-in-laws of Naomi. So Rebecca wrote feverishly the name on a piece of paper and it was transcribed on her birth certificate. But she spelled the name wrong. But it stuck. When the women left the bedroom and came out into the living room of the house, the little baby was placed not in her mother's arms, but in her grandmother's arms. Her grandmother's name was Hattie Mae. Hattie Mae was the granddaughter of slaves. She had only a third grade education, and yet she was one of the wisest people that you'd ever want to meet. She had raised six children in the most racist, the most segregated, and the poorest state in all of America. And yet every one of those of her children flourished. When this baby came along in 1954, Hattie Mae thought it was a gift of God. She treated her like her own baby. By the time she could walk, she would begin to take her to Buffalo Baptist Church right there in the center of town. She would teach her the Scriptures. They'd read them together. She'd tell, them, or tell her all the stories of the Bible, especially those stories of Jesus. She also made her memorize Scripture. One of the first verses that she memorized was Hattie's favorite from Romans 15.1 where Paul says, the strong ought to bear with the infirmities of the weak. And that's what Hattie May did. She spent her life doing good for others. And when anybody pointed out the fact that she was doing good things, she always said the same thing, I'm just doing it for Jesus. One of the reasons Hattie May played such a large role in this little girl's life was that her mother was never married. In fact, when she was born, it was thought that there could possibly be three different fathers. It was always assumed that Vernon was the man. He was tall and handsome and had a strong work ethic. He used to say, you ought to live your life so that when you die, the preacher doesn't have to lie about you. Well, years later when Oprah Winfrey discovered that Vernon Winfrey wasn't really her father, she said it really doesn't matter because he's the best father that anybody could ever have. In her late 20s, Oprah lived in Baltimore, Maryland. She worked for a television station there, and she also went to church. She went to the Bethel AME Church. One Sunday morning as she was listening to Reverend John Richard Bryant preach on the Second Commandment, she said, suddenly something transformational happened in me. I was listening to him preach about the Second Commandment, 
where God says, make no graven image. But then God adds these words, for I am a jealous God. And I thought to myself, why in the world would God be jealous of anything? I mean, God has everything. Why should He be jealous of of anything? And why, oh why, should God ever be threatened by the questions I might ask Him? All my life I've been taught, don't question God. But now in that church, as I listen to that preacher preach, I thought to myself, everything's up for grabs. I found myself longing for something broader, something far more substantial than the scheme of truth that I had been taught. Years ago, I remember a woman calling me in hysterics. Her grandson had just received a bad diagnosis and she was calling to ask me why. She said, how could a good God do such a thing? My grandson never did anything to deserve this. He's a victim of a mean God. And by this time in the call, I knew that she really wasn't looking for answers. She was simply shooting her arrows and God was her target. And the psalmist could understand that. There's no person in the Bible who asks more questions of God than David. In fact, David is famous for his questions. In fact, it's one of David's questions that Jesus picks up when He's hanging on the cross. His fourth saying from the cross, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? That's right out of Psalm 22. And yet that's not the only question that David asks in that psalm. Not only does he ask, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? But he follows it up with an equally important question. O God, O Lord, why are You so far from saving Me? And then another question. Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Now think about those questions. David asked those questions 1,500 years before Jesus. And there is absolutely no answer to those questions in Psalm 22. In fact, we don't get any answers in any of the other Psalms either. It's not until you get to John 18 that you really get the definitive answers to each one of those questions. And that's why it's so important for us to dig into this text. Because here are the answers to those three questions that are the three questions that are more relevant to your life and my life than any other ones in the Bible. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the slap. Look at verse 22. When Jesus had said these things before Caiaphas, One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? In 1892, a manuscript of John's Gospel was found in the Sinai Peninsula. And it was a great thing that it was was found because it answered questions that people have been asking about John 18 for centuries. When you read the text as we just did, you will find, and you read it closely, you'll find you have a question. And that is, where is Jesus? Is he before Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, or is he before Caiaphas? And what this manuscript does is it cleans up the language. It combines verse 24 with verse 13. 
And we see that where Jesus is, is before Caiaphas. He's before the high priest that year. And standing before Him, Jesus is interrogated. Now remember Caiaphas. He is the one that said to the leaders of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, it is expedient for us that one man die to save the nation. And so what's Caiaphas doing here with Jesus standing before him? He's framing him. John says it this way, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus' response is swift. He says in effect, I've covered all this. I've spoken openly in the synagogues and in the temple. You can ask anyone who's heard me. They can answer the questions you've just asked. And as soon as he finishes, John says, one of the officers standing by Jesus slaps him. Now in the culture of the Jews of Jesus' day, if you wanted to curse someone, what you did was simply turn your back on them. To turn your back on someone was not only to be dismissive of them, but it was actually to say, you have absolutely no value. Now that was the significance of turning your back. But there was an equally dismissive approach to a person you could take, and that was to slap him. So think of who's slapping Jesus. It's an officer of the high priest. And think of who that man is slapping. He's slapping God in the flesh. 1700 or 700 years before this incident, the prophet Isaiah had said he would be like one who, from whom men hide their faces. In other words, men will turn their backs on this one. But here they do something else. They don't just turn their back on Jesus. They slap Him. They slap Him in the face. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president, there was a man who was a Republican who lived in New York and he would always commute every day on train, on, by a train from Westchester County into the city. And his approach was always the same. He would go to the same station. He'd go to the same newsboy and give him a quarter. The newsboy would give him a paper. He'd take a look at the front page, then hand it back to the boy and say, and said, sell it to someone else. After doing this for weeks, the young paper boy got up the courage and he said, why do you do this? Every day you buy a paper from me, you look at the front page, and then give it back to me and tell me to sell it to somebody else. The man looked him in the eye and said, because I'm looking for a death notice. The young boy said, but the... But the death notices are in section C. And you just looked at the front page. The man said, the death notice I'm looking for will be on the front page. Now according to Paul, that's the way every one of us feels about God in our own human nature. He says it this way, the carnal mind is hatred toward God. In other words, we are born with an implicit hatred toward God. Someone has said, never has the wickedness of the human mind been on fuller display than when the Son of Man is slapped in the court of the high priest. For all divine restraint is withdrawn. And human depravity is allowed to show itself in all of its stark hideousness. You see, David asked the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And the answer to that question is plain. Because you're wicked. I am a holy God and you are wicked. Instead of worshiping me, you slap me. Instead of celebrating me, you curse me. Instead of seeking to praise me and please me, you are possessed with your own perspectives. But notice, God doesn't just answer with that. He continues. He doesn't stop there. He continues. And what He tells us in Christ is, every slap that you and I deserve, He takes on Himself. This is not just a Jewish officer slapping the Son of God. This is His own Father slapping Him. Think of it. There's only one person in all of the Bible, there's only one person in all of human existence that doesn't deserve this. And that's Jesus, the Son of God. And yet His Father, here in the court of the high priest, His Father slaps Him silly for your sake. And for mine. Second, notice the whip. Look at verse 30. They answered him, If this man were doing evil, we would not have delivered him to you. And then verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now it's important to notice who's doing the flogging here. It's not the Jews, it's the Romans. You say, is that important? It's absolutely important. You know why? Because the Jews had a restriction. The Jewish law said if you flogged someone, if you gave him lashes with a whip, you could have to stop at 39. But if you were a Roman, they had no such restrictions. They could whip a person until they were dead. Years ago in China, a young man became a missionary. When he was asked what caused him to convert to Christ, how did he come to saving faith, his response was swift. He said, my mother. When asked to explain it, he said, when I was a young boy, even a teenager, I was wild. I was very difficult to control. And my mother sought to control me for all she was worth because it would bring shame to my father and shame on our family. But everything she tried didn't work. One day she was chasing me. We had gone about a half mile and suddenly my mother stops, and I look over my shoulder to see that she stopped. And I see that she pulled out a whip, and she begins to whip her arms and her torso. When I saw it, I stopped. I felt compelled to go to her, and I began to run to her and said, Mama, stop! Don't do that! Don't hurt yourself! And it wasn't too long after that I realized I had done the same thing to Jesus. It wasn't too long after that I recognized that I had treated Jesus Christ the same way I had treated my mother. In Genesis chapter 3, the Lord says to the serpent, I will put hatred between you and the seed of the woman. And that's exactly what we see in Pilate's court. When David asks, Oh Lord, why are You so far from saving me? The answer comes in Pilate's court. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm saving You from every curse that You deserve. I am whipping myself rather than whipping You. When Joseph Scriven was graduating from college, he 
got word on his graduation day that his fiancée had just died by drowning. Within two weeks, his mother got desperately ill and she also died. And you know his reaction to both of those tragedies? He sat down and he penned a hymn. And the title of the hymn is, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. You say, what kind of friend is it who would take your fiancé and your mother? The same kind of friend who would take every lash that you and I deserve. The same kind of friend who would stand in the court of Pilate and allow Pilate's officers to whip him to a pulp. Taking the beating that you and I deserve. Joseph Scriven understood that. So did that Chinese missionary. So did John. Then third, notice the crown of thorns. Look at verse 2 of chapter 19. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. David asks, O Lord, why are You so far from my groanings? And here the Lord proves that He isn't far at all. Look what John tells us. They fashioned for Him a crown of thorns. Why a crown? Well, the answer is obvious. They've heard what the crowd was saying. They heard what the crowd said on the day He rode into Jerusalem. They heard what the crowd of disciples have said. They heard what Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. So they fashioned a crown for Him. But why a crown of thorns? Why not metal? Why not wood? Why thorns? And you say, well, maybe they had thorns readily available. And maybe that's true, but there's a better reason than that. Do you remember what the Lord said to Adam when He issues His punishment in the Garden of Eden? He says to him, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. Do you hear this? Of all the things they could use to fashion a crown, they use thorns. How appropriate. It's a sign of our own sin. At the end of World War II, it was discovered that the German Air Force had dropped over a million pounds of bombs on the city of London. And what they discovered when they began to clear the debris of all of the buildings that had been reduced to rubble was something amazing happened. Within a few months, they began to see flowers springing up from the places where the buildings were. And the amazing thing about these flowers is they were flowers that were thought to be extinct for hundreds and hundreds of years. Every botanist in uh, Britain knew that these were extinct flowers and now they were being seen. Those seeds had laid under those buildings for hundreds and hundreds of years. But when the building was blown away and the debris was removed, those seeds began to take life. Someone has said when some tragedy faces us, or when we face some crisis, or when we feel as though we're invincible. Often seeds of sin arise in our hearts that we thought were extinct. Occasionally you'll hear about a man of exemplary character 
who commits murder or embezzles money and we're shocked. And we say to ourselves, how could he ever do that? I thought he was a different kind of guy. What a terrible man. Don't think that. The seed of every sin lies deep within the heart of every man and woman. You see, the reason Jesus wears a crown of thorns is so that all the world might see not just who He is, but who we are. That grandmother called me years ago and said, how could a good God do such a thing to my grandson? My grandson is innocent. He is a victim of a mean God. You know the answer to that question? No, actually, your grandson is a beneficiary of a loving God whose love is so inescapable that your grandson can do nothing to avoid it. He's a God who took upon Himself far more than a bad diagnosis. He took upon Himself the everlasting weight of every one of our sins. And the more you know that, the more you'll find that Jesus is the answer to every question of pain and suffering. You know what else you'll find? The longer you focus on the slap and the whip and the crown of thorns, the more you will see that God is not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. He does everything in His power. From slapping His Son to whipping His Son to putting a crown of thorns on His Son's head and hanging Him on a cross. He does everything in His power for one singular purpose. So that He might spend eternity with you. He's jealous for you. I'm not sure how Oprah Winfrey got it wrong. But God doesn't censor our questions. He prompts them. So that every one of our questions might drive us to the answer. And the answer is always found in Jesus Christ. There's no better place to find the answer to the questions David asked in Psalm 22 than in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas. Or in the courtyard of the governor Pilate. Or near the cross when they put on his head a crown of thorns. You know, today is the beginning of Holy Week. Can you think of a better time to think about that? Amen.